my clinic capacity went to suddenly like 90 to 100 percent i had to shift my focus i had to because i was completely full i had a wait list and i realized that okay i need to figure out what else i'm going to do because if i'm not well for a period of time and i can't work i'm pretty screwed so going into things like courses and cpd just made sense from that perspective to play to my strengths and also to again fill in the gaps of things that i thought were missing out there in the world or just not really in the way that I wanted them to be. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Business Secrets Podcast. I'm Joe Cunningham. I'm Claire Hitchin. And I'm Zoe Whitman. We're the founders of WellConnect, the platform bringing you everything you need to know to grow a thriving nutrition business. We're passionate about the nutrition industry and we're on a mission to give other nutrition professionals the confidence and tools you need to build the business of your dreams without the overwhelm. We've got you covered from practical strategy advice, meaningful marketing, social media, knowing your numbers and so much more. Get ready to skyrocket your nutrition business with the help of industry experts. This is the Nutrition Business Secrets Podcast. Let's get started. Welcome to today's podcast. We have an amazing special guest today with us, Pixie Turner, who is a registered nutritionist, psychotherapist and director at the Food Therapy Centre, where she specialises in food and body image issues. She's the author of several books, including Food Therapy, which was released this year and has been featured as an expert both on TV and in lots of different newspapers. So welcome, Pixie. So good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really happy that the sun is coming out. So that immediately makes me just feel better about life as a whole. Absolutely. It's starting to feel like spring. I literally said yesterday, is that spring? Well, that's that's really good. So do you want to tell us a bit more about your journey? It's been a really interesting one from the days when you first became a nutritionist to setting up plant-based pixie to rebranding and building your business to where it is now. Tell us a bit more about that journey. Okay, it's been quite a long process to get to this point, I think, and I've had some very weird twists and turns. It's been an unexpected journey, I think. So I started as a random person posting on social media who was posting my food pictures primarily, and I called myself plant-based pixie, mainly because of the alliteration. That was the main thing. The alliteration, I thought, that sounds good. And through that, I managed to gain quite a following on social media over a couple of years which was not expected, but was quite stressful uh, because I didn't think that that would ever be a thing that would happen in my life. And I was very much within the space of the kind of the wanky side of the wellness movement at that point. And I reached a point in 2015 where I thought to myself, what on earth am I doing? This is not good. I am saying things to the world that are not true. I am spouting absolute nonsense. And so I decided to completely change what I was doing on social media and start calling out the bullshit that I was seeing and calling out what I called the the nutribolics at the time. And I started gently calling out other bloggers who were in that kind of space. And then I realized "Mm, this is a bit hypocritical of me because I am saying that you shouldn't trust these people because they're not qualified in nutrition. And yet here I am completely without qualifications in nutrition. So I thought that is unacceptable. We must do something about it. So out of a fear of being a hypocrite and due to uh, a fair amount of rage, 
I decided to embark on a master's degree in nutrition. I applied for it in the July. I got accepted in August and I started that September. And so that was quite a, quite a quick turnaround, but a really good decision. It was a great course. And a year later, I was off and trying to figure out how I was going to make this actually a career, not just winging it on social media. So at that time, I was still plant-based pixie, mainly because people were associating me with the name and I wasn't sure yet how to go about changing that. I did eventually uh, change the name to Pixie Nutrition, which I felt was a much more accurate representation of who I was. At the start of my nutrition career, I had no idea what I was doing. I had absolutely no idea. I had some idea of wanting to work in private practice, wanting to do more media work. Uh, I had a... um, I had a book deal shortly afterwards as well, which I was then trying to figure out what I was doing with that. But it took a couple of years to really figure out what I was doing. And I made a lot of twists and turns along the way in terms of thinking I would go in one direction and then actually figure out, "Mm, that's not so much for me going in a different direction. Eventually over a couple of years, figuring out what I wanted only to then go, hmm, let's go do a qualification in psychotherapy. So the second I'm genuinely settled in some in something, I tend to then find the next challenge. And so that's, I guess, brings us to where I am now, where I run this business, the Food Therapy Center. Uh, we are expanding. There are currently two of us, but soon, hopefully, there will be more. I'm planning on hiring more people soon. So it's that's going really well. And I feel really, really happy with the work I'm doing now. I'm basically only doing what I want and not doing things that I don't want to anymore. But that has taken a good uh, five to six years to figure out. It's been such an amazing journey to watch, you know, from from my perspective as well, I'm sure everybody else's. And could you talk about your decision to enhance your qualification with that psychotherapy qualification? Yeah, absolutely. It was not a decision I took lightly because that is another three-year qualification on top of everything else. I'd already spent four years at uni. I didn't really want to go on another journey as a student that was that lengthy. But over time, the more time I spent with my clients, the the more sessions I had, the more different kind of diverse clients I was seeing, the more I realized that clients were starting to see me as a kind of therapist. And the things that we were talking about, the things that they would bring voluntarily to the sessions started to feel more like therapy. Now I'd been in therapy at this point, so I had an idea of what therapy felt like. And then some of my clients actually started calling me their therapist. Now I didn't correct them, but I also didn't say, yes, that's correct. I am your therapist. So because of that, I realized that if I wanted to do the work that I really, really was passionate about. And if I wanted to serve my clients in the way that they were clearly anticipating and expecting of me and hoping from me, I had to do more. I had to be super qualified and become a therapist essentially to combine these things together. And so I started with a kind of a foundation course that was one year and uh, that was in psychodynamic. And then I realized Freud and I, we don't vibe too much. It's way too, it's ah, not a big fan of blaming everything on the mother. Uh, And it was very heteronormative, which I'm not a big fan of. I thought it was a bit backwards in places, my training at least. So I switched to a more humanistic, uh, person-centered and existential um, psychotherapy training for the final two years. And I graduated from that last summer. So that was uh, July 2022. After three years of training, trying to work as close to full-time as possible whilst studying part-time, I was free 
and life has been glorious since. <laughs> it's been so nice to have so much more time. But also just being a therapist is wonderful. I, I absolutely love it. It's, it's everything I hoped it would be. Congratulations for for that qualification. I mean, not many nutritionists can say that they're also psychotherapists. I mean, I do know a dietitian who's also a nutritional therapist, so they've got that kind of holistic approach. But it's quite a unique skill set that you're you're probably bringing. That I imagine lots of other nutritionists are going to want to to do to enhance their practice. And thinking about like your client base, like you said, your clients were the ones who were asking this of you. Did your clients find you or did you decide on your niche and put that out there to kind of focus in and find those clients specifically? Talk to us about your niche a little bit. So there's kind of been two stages to this that I think are really different and really interesting. The first one was just after I graduated and started working in private practice. I did not have a particular client in mind. I very much just thought I need some clients any clients, just please somebody come and see me so I can, so you can pay me and I can help you. Let's get this thing started. And so I just saw anyone for any kind of nutrition related issue that I felt was within my scope of practice, uh, really kind of variety, uh, very much in the direction of kind of, you know, doing food diaries, giving kind of very specific dietary advice, that kind of thing. And so after I kind of didn't, so I basically, I just didn't really discriminate. I saw anyone who was willing to see me for at least the first year, I would say. And then I started, I kind of sat down and thought, okay, which sessions am I really enjoying? Which ones do I find not so interesting? Which ones are just not really the kind of conversations that I'm interested in having? And so that was when I realized I'm really not interested in the kind of weight management side of things at all. It doesn't vibe with me. I find those conversations personally really, really boring. So as a professional, it didn't seem either ethical or sensible to continue to pursue and encourage those clients to see me because I was clearly not the right person for them. And I shifted much more into what we would, I suppose, call nutrition counseling, which is more relationship with food style things, uh, far less in terms of food diaries and specific uh, maybe maybe eat this or you need more of this nutrient and much more in terms of let's talk about your relationship with food and your body. I did training in things like intuitive eating and body image issues and really kind of pushed myself in that direction because that was what I was most interested in. So that part of the process was hugely guided by what I found interesting, the kind of clients that I wanted to see, the client kind of clients who I thought it made most sense for me to see because that's what I was actually interested in, in terms of conversation. So that's the first part. And then as I got really settled in that after a couple of years, that's when the other shift in terms of leaning more towards therapy happened because not because of anything that I pursued or anything that I was um, super interested in, but largely because of what my clients were bringing to me. So I find it interesting, kind of the first, I guess, half of my career so far, it was very much led by my desires, my, uh, my interests. And in the second half, it's been much more about what my clients have wanted from me and what I, what they are clearly looking for from me. So it's much more client-led in the second half. So it's interesting how it's kind of been a bit of both in that sense. I think that's a really interesting learning about not only being okay with pivoting, but also listening to who is coming to you and to, and to, to what your clients are saying, because it's so easy to just keep taking everyone often get then overwhelmed with so many different facets of nutrition and not niching down and still doing things like you say that you don't necessarily enjoy and actually having the opportunity to take the step back like you did and think about what you actually want for the longevity of your career 
and what you want to be known for, what you want to specialize in is so powerful. Yeah, I think it was a really uh, effective process for me. Not that I had much in the way of guidance as to how to do this from, from others. It was very much a kind of a, okay, I probably need to figure this out. I also want to point out, it wasn't that my clients explicitly said to me, I want you to be my therapist. It was much more in the subtext. It was there in the way that they communicated with me. It was the, it was the type of things they were bringing, the type of conversations that we were naturally started to have. So I think you have to kind of look beyond what clients are explicitly saying and look for kind of, yeah, really what is, what is there in the subtext in uh, the music behind the words, uh, as we often say in therapy, what is not being said, but is absolutely fully present there and fully there in terms of the kind of the, the energy in the room as well. You mentioned nutrition counselling being more your area now, and I I know you refer to yourself as a nutrition counsellor. How important do you think that positioning and that slight word tweak, because I I do think that stands out among nutritionists using that counsellor word. How important do you think that positioning has been for you now to then attract the clients that you do want to work with and, and to attract the right people? I think it's been really helpful just in making it a lot clearer from the start exactly what it is I offer. Because from what I've learned and uh, generally conversations I've had, not just with potential clients, but with people in general, if I say I'm a nutritionist, people have certain preconceived ideas as to what that means. And people think it means, uh, for example, weight management, food diaries, uh, these kinds of things. And that is just not my area of specialism at all. What I found is if I say nutrition counseling, that immediately kind of signals to people that it's it's a different branch of nutrition that I, that I'm working in. And it just helps to just bypass the potential misunderstandings and the potential preconceived ideas that people might have about my work. And it means people immediately have a clear idea. So I find that quite helpful. Yeah. And I mean, I think in all aspects of any type of nutrition consulting, the, the behavior and psychology behind, you know, somebody's relationship with food is just so important. And Although we get taught it at university in our in our different professions, it it isn't something that we always hone in on massively. And I think it's an area that we should be encouraging more and talking about more because it is just so important. You you know, people are developing sensitivities and intolerances because they're worrying about it so much. When actually, if we look at those behaviours that they've got, those relationships with food, we we might be able to kind of prevent or, or get rid of some of those sort of fears around different foods yeah the nocebo effect is real and it is I think more common than people realize for sure I think these kind of things should be standard as part of the training people have I mean I got no training in my master's in anything that was remotely related to private practice seeing clients I would love it if uh, there was like a an elective module on every single like nutrition degree and master's that related to private practice, seeing clients, counseling skills. Oh, but hey, a girl can dream. Just just thinking then about the fact that you are building a practice and you didn't have that education on, on how to do it, essentially. How have you learned how to do your courses, how to write a book, how to expand your, your clinic, you know, diversifying your income streams? I did it by trying, messing up, trying again, trying something new, Googling a lot, and generally just trying to figure things out as quickly as possible. I'm generally, I'm quite a fast learner. I have a really good memory. I can pick up a lot of things quite quickly, uh, which has been really to, to my advantage over the years. But a lot of the things I've done, 
I've done largely with some support in places, but a lot of the, th- the kind of support I was looking for was really difficult to find um, like a good five, six years ago. Um, not so much. I mean, I've, from what I understand, dietitians have had so much more support than kind of registered nutritionists. Uh, that's at least how it's kind of felt, felt for me at least. So everything's been a very steep learning curve and just, ah, let's try something and see what happens. Um, that's very much how it has felt. It's very much been a case of, eh, that might work. And some, and somehow things have kind of worked out along the way. I think, uh, yeah. There's a lot of things that I've tried that I've left by the wayside um, and a lot of things that I still know now in terms of, for example, working with clients. I learned everything as I went, pretty much everything I learned, I did as I went. I did a couple of shadowing sessions before I started that were super, super helpful, that were incredible. I had a mentor who helped me a little bit, gave me some guidance, gave me some opportunities. But a lot of the kind of the business logistics side of things, I figured that out as I went. Uh, and along the way, whenever I learned something, I would go, oops, probably should have had that from the start. Never mind. It's there now. Everything's fine. Nobody ask any questions. It very much did feel like that. It was like, oh, this is a thing. Okay. I should probably do that. Oh, that is also something I need to be aware of. Okay. I need to go and do that. A lot of my Googling was around how therapists work and in terms of things like confidentiality, consent forms, intake forms. I took a lot of that from therapists and adapted it to my practice because there's a lot of very robust information about on the internet for therapists, not so much for nutrition professionals, at least not six years ago. And then when, when I started, I didn't see many clients. It took me a couple of years to really build up a proper client base. So I started doing things like creating recipes for cafes, doing consulting for cafes and restaurants and things like that, especially ones that were considering um, their menus before opening for the first time. I did a fair bit of that kind of work and recipe development for them as well with it from a kind of nutritional angle, because they were trying to be like healthy cafes. So I did that. It was fine. I didn't enjoy it, but it really helped pay the bills at the beginning for sure. Then I also started doing more public speaking, which generally, especially if you're doing corporate stuff, pays a little bit better. I had a speaking agent for that, which really, really helped. Uh, And then what I started doing was I made a note of all the things I wish someone had taught me when I was fresh out of uni. And I started creating those things for students and graduates. And that built itself really quickly because although there's quite a few options available for people now, six years ago, there was almost nothing in terms of the things that I started creating for students. There was, it, there was a huge gap and it was very much driven by these is, this is the stuff that I wish someone had told me. This is the stuff I wish had been readily available at low cost, easily accessible uh, when I was fresh out of uni. Cause I tried to find the stuff and I just couldn't find it. And that really helped as well. And it felt really lovely to be able to give back in that kind of way. That kind of student group that I created is still running, is still something I do and I really, really enjoy. And then it wasn't, it's not, it's not until recently that I've really also been kind of focusing on things like, uh, courses, that kind of more kind of passive income side of things to, um, really kind of supplement what I'm doing. Oh yeah. And I wrote a few books as well that, that helps, but they, those pay really badly. So that's definitely not a kind of, not something you could do full time at all. And then I reached a point in my practice where I realized I needed to bring on someone new, found the perfect person, the absolute perfect person quite by accident. And now we're a team of two. 
and it's great. And things are, you know, things are changed. Things are still growing. There's, there's, you know, new ideas I have and things I'm kind of focusing on more now. But uh, yeah, I have more of a plan than I used to. I actually have like a one year, five year, and ten year plan now, which I did not have until like two years ago. Obviously, you know, it's. Um, I'm not going to stick to it perfectly. I've already had to adapt it three times since I created it like last year and and also once already since I created it this January. But hey, it's fine. It's all good. It's still fun to have. In all of that trial and error that you went through, because that, you know, that is often how people start start to learn, start out their businesses. They try things, they figure out what works and what doesn't. What are some of the biggest learnings, if you can identify some specifics? that you took from that and that you now kind of give to other students? Try anything, pretty much anything at the beginning, I think is really key. I always get a bit wary when people specialize super, super quickly. I just think, how do you know for sure? Like you're yes, you're less than one year into working as a nutrition professional. How can you know that this is exactly the specialism that you want? I think I, I generally encourage people to take their time to figure it out, especially because, you know, some of these people, they're what, 21, 22. I'm like, you've got so much of your life ahead of you. Slow down. It's going to be fine. Just take your time to figure things out. I think, and I took a lot of opportunities that, that came my way, even if I wasn't super keen on them. I did a lot of speaking for free at different places as well, which really helped me build my skills. I reached a point where I think the most important lesson for me was to say no to things that I no longer wanted to do. Also being able to recognize that I was at the point where I could say no to things, that was quite scary and quite daunting. Uh, but the best thing I could do at that point for myself was to start to say no to a bunch of things that I was just like, I'm not interested in this. I really don't want to do this. This is not an effective use of my time as well. Yeah. Very liberating and very powerful for actually growing your business, even though it feels scary at first, right? hugely scary hugely uh especially because you know especially when you're freelance there's that fear of oh but what if i what if i run out of money what if i don't what if there's like things dry up what if what if it doesn't work out and i've said no to something that could be really lucrative but for example i shifted completely away from doing any kind of sponsored content on social media and i haven't done that for years now and oh i feel so much better because of it because i didn't i hated it i i just truly hated it it wasn't for me but saying no to, because, you know, they would pay quite well, you know, a couple of thousand pounds here and there. That would, sounds quite nice. But I realized it just was not worth it because it made me absolutely miserable. Yeah. But saying no to things, I think that was probably one of the best lessons. And also the the other really, really difficult thing for me. So I, I'm a bit of a control freak and my business is my baby. I have built it over years and it's now, it's my baby. It's, it's, it's lovely. It's my precious. It's, it's wonderful. And hiring someone who to then do things so that I could let go of them. It was so hard. And I, in some ways I feel slightly sorry for, for Hebe who works with me at the beginning because I was just really scared of, of handing things over to her. I would, I was a bit micromanagey at the beginning. It was a very, difficult process to let go of some things and just allow her to do things to you know make some mistakes try some things but she now does a lot of things that I have no interest in she runs one of our Instagram accounts for example not mine but the um the mentoring page we have I don't have anything to do with that I have zero to do with that she does everything she sees a bunch of clients and she's doing that on her own I'm not there I'm of course I'm not present in the room I'm not allowed to be but she's just doing that 
And I have no idea how it's going, but it, obviously it's going well. But things like that have been really terrifying. And that's only going to get worse as time goes on because she's getting more projects and things uh, to do on her own. But actually realizing I don't want to do this stuff. I'm not good at this stuff. Like marketing, branding, these things are not my strength. Things like I realized things like accounting, I'm really good at that stuff. I became an employer and like registered as an employer and I do payroll and everything. Um by myself, steep learning curve, but I can do those things. And I quite enjoy being in control of that. But any stuff that involves Canva is not really my strong suit at all. Uh, but Hebe's good at that stuff. Like she designed this fantastic logo. Oh my God, incredible. And then as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this makes perfect sense. But I would never have come up with it in the first place ever. That's so important to know your own strengths and then where you can outsource, bring someone else in, get the support that you need elsewhere. Because like you said, if you're trying to do something, going down a rabbit hole of something that you don't feel comfortable in or you don't feel like is your strength, probably going to take you a lot longer as well. And you're not going to enjoy it when you could be focusing on the things that are within your expertise and that you enjoy that will push the business forward more that you can kind of, yeah, separate and delegate off things that you don't necessarily need to do, which you've obviously found has been successful for you with with the person that you've brought into your business. It's exactly why Claire and I work well together because I also, I'm, I'm fine with the numbers. Marketing and the branding is not my forte either, but it is obviously something that, that Claire is excellent at. So I think it is finding people that you can work well with and that you can trust. And it is letting, letting go sometimes is incredibly difficult, isn't it? But yeah, it, it's getting, getting the network around you and then letting them be who you know that they can be. Thinking about all of the different sort of passive income streams, the, the courses, the books and everything, how important do you think diversifying your business activity beyond just one-on-one consultations has been for you? I've kind of changed my view of it over the years. At first, um, I think earlier on, a couple of years ago, I was so focused on building my client base that I had very much blinkers on in relation to that. The The books were largely because someone said to me, hey, would you like to write a book like this. And I went, yes, I think I would like to write a book like this. And so I then did in my spare time, uh, which I am very aware of the unusual privileged position that is and how that is not a kind of typical experience at all. But in terms of, yeah, I was so blinkered in terms of must build my client base, must build my client base and put all my kind of focus into that as well as, you know, doing the work for students I felt was, um, I didn't see that so much as diverse, diversifying my income as saw it much more as this is something I'm really passionate about and I want to give back. And I, I have this extra time because I don't have a full client base. So I might as well do something useful with that. But then I reached a point where I was the, actually it was when the pandemic hit, it was in 2020. And suddenly my clinic capacity went from, I was like 50, 60% capacity to suddenly like 90 to hundred percent capacity or in the space of a very short time, uh, which is when I brought Hebe on as well to, to work with me. I had, I had to shift my focus. I had to, because I, my, I was completely full. I had a wait list and I realized that, okay, I need to figure out what else I'm going to do. Because if I'm, if I'm not well for a period of time and I can't work, I'm pretty screwed. At the time, also my, uh, my mortgage broker at the time was also like, you should get some kind of insurance for your, for your income because you're self-employed. And I was like, what on earth are you talking about? What, what is this nonsense? <laughs> and actually turns out that probably would be a good idea because, uh, they basically just pay you a lump sum if you're unwell and off work for a, a number of months or something. Probably need to 
figure something out that so that no, I'm not getting basically almost all of my income from, from clients just to kind of protect the business as well. Cause I'm like, this is my baby. I must protect this. And I, I know that one of my strengths is, is public speaking because I have worked really hard to develop that skill over the years. And I knew I was really passionate about teaching. So that's how I, and I didn't want to be like a lecturer or something, although I do guest lectures occasionally. So going into things like courses and CPD just made sense from that perspective to play to my strengths and also, again, to again fill in the gaps of things that I thought were missing in out there in the world or just not really in the way that I wanted them to be. So I created the things that I, that I wanted. And that's kind of been more of my focus, especially since obviously all of this got put on hold while I was studying. Uh, because I had no time to do more things and the qualification was really the priority at that point. But since then, I've, my focus has really been on, on kind of diversifying and uh, to protect the business primarily and also to keep my life more interesting, my working week more interesting. So I have my clients, but I also have my non-clinical days where I am working on things like CPD uh, courses and beyond. Exciting. I think, yeah, as you say, it's so important to keep yourself, motivating yourself engaged as well in your own business because as much as we all love our own businesses you know it's that phrase where if you find something you love you never work a day in your life isn't always that accurate it can still be stressful you can still have days where where you don't want to do it because you've gone down an avenue that you find yourself actually less passionate about so finding those other areas that you are passionate about is so important so when with your public speaking how did that come about for you how did you go about finding those opportunities, setting it up. I know you mentioned an agent. What sorts of things have you done to, to really establish that? Really, it started by accident because through the blogging I was doing way back in the day, like 10 years ago, I was occasionally offered the opportunity to be on like a panel or to speak about um, either like blogging as or like Instagram as a kind of uh, influencer type thing. Or then uh, later on, once I was qualified to actually speak about kind of nutrition misinformation, for example. And then as a result of my first book being released, I started, I did some speaking around that, that my, um, some of which my publisher helped with, some of which was people coming to me and saying, Hey, we, we've seen that you have this book out. Would you like to do this talk? Would you like to speak at this? And really, uh, I did a couple of quite high profile speaking things that had overall like thousands of people were in, a, in attendance, which is really daunting, but great experience. And that kind of opened the doors to a bunch of like corporate opportunities where people would approach like well-being teams from big organizations like uh, Amazon and Google would then come and approach me and say, Hey, we've, we've, we've discovered your existence. Would you like to speak to our staff? And I said, yes, of course. And thankfully also I got really lucky in some senses because I had a literary agent who found me while I was still doing my master's. And I signed with that particular literary agency. It wasn't long after that, that they transformed into a 360 agency. So they moved beyond being just a literary agency to also then having like brand um, specialist, a um, broadcast agent, speaking agents. So now I have all of those things because I got kind of lucky and, and joined when they were just a literary agency. But now I have a uh, broadcast and brand licensing um, agent. I have a literary agent and I also have a speaking agent there. And the speaking agent has been really instrumental in getting me some really fascinating speaking opportunities. So there was definitely some luck involved in that. A lot of that was actually a bit of luck being at the right place at the right time. And 
also, yeah, I did, I did a fair bit of speaking, uh, for free or for like 50 to a hundred pounds at the beginning when I started out small, small change in comparison to what kind of, um, big cor- corporations will pay, but, uh, very good experience. Very good experience. It sounds like that initial effort that you put in, I know you, you, you maybe call it luck sometimes, but that initial effort you put into kind of social media, your own visibility, your discoverability, I think you, you referred to it as, was so important to then be found by corporations, your agent, different organizations that then wanted to, to invite you to come and speak. So would would you would you agree with that? Would you say that that kind of initial visibility, where you know when you started out, social media was your main platform, perhaps your blog? How important do you think those things were and are now? Back then, they were super important because that's how people knew that I even existed. So I think at the start, it was super helpful and really kicked off a lot of things for me. Which is, um, and I know a lot, a lot of social media is you know luck and being at the right place at the right time. So I really do think that that was a big part of it. And also, yeah, I, you know, I took opportunities. I, you know, did a lot of stuff for free or for very little money to kind of really build that experience. So I think I also, I took those opportunities and I ran with them. Interestingly, now I would say those things aren't as important because although at the beginning uh, people found me because of my visibility, now people find me because of my experience and my expertise. And I don't need to have uh, a blog. I don't actually have one anymore. And I don't need to be posting on social media that regularly for those things to be valid on their own merit. Uh, so it's been a really interesting shift that started with visibility. And now people find me because of my specific expertise and my specific experience and my ability to speak on on very specific topics, because that's what I'm more known for, that, that expertise rather than because I post on social media. I think Instagram does help. Um, I'm not gonna not gonna sit here and say it's irrelevant now, but it's less relevant than it used to be. Which I think will be music to a lot of people's ears because I think that's the one barrier a lot of people have in terms of the time, the ideas, the consistency on social media. But it's you say almost building up that credibility and visibility initially. And then you've built that profile, that presence, that awareness around you and your business that you can then maybe not focus on that so much and focus on the other areas that, that you really want to, to do. Um, I'm interested to hear a bit more about your book deals because I think a lot of nutrition professionals have an ambition to be, become an author and, and, and write a book. Um, give us a really honest, I know you always will be, <laughs> um, an honest look at, at what that actually looks like behind the scenes because, as you mentioned, it's not always the kind of money-making aspect that people might think it is. It takes a hell of a lot of work. I know I've, I've helped a couple of dietitians now with their own books and it's a huge project, isn't it? So how, how has that been for you? I'm concerned I'm going to slightly shit on a bunch of people dream, people's dreams right now, but honestly, I really thought it was this incredibly glamorous, aspirational, incredible thing. And on in some ways it is. To have a physical copy of something that you've worked really hard on out in the world, in the wild, that people can just pick up that will exist uh, for a very long time in some form or another as a kind of legacy is incredible and is a truly mind-blowing thing. The process itself is so unglamorous and not actually anywhere near as exciting or profitable or value for money as people think. 
it is uh, a painful process to actually get a book to a place where someone actually then picks it up. So, you know, you write these proposals, you send them off to all these publishers, you instantly get generally a lot of rejections right from the start. There's a usually, you know, for these kinds of books, there's a couple of people interested here and there. And then you have the painful process of you know, having meetings with everyone, trying to be like, please, please, please publish my book. Um, and then, you know, you, you engage in the negotiation as to how much they'll pay you for in advance, which really uh, is quite scathing because it's basically their assessment of how well your book will sell. And the more risky it is, the less of an advance they will pay you. And what people don't realize, they, they think, you know, oh, passive income royalties. A lot of people, a lot of books, I think I read something like at least 70 to 80% of books that are published, you don't get royalties because they have to actually sell quite a few copies to start making royalties because you have to pay off your advance. People don't realize this. So if your book doesn't sell very well, you just get nothing from that point onwards. Your advance covers the writing process, but from that point, the publisher wants to recoup the money they've spent on you. So you don't get any money on royalties unless you've paid off your advance first. So, you know, smaller advance, more likely to get royalties and so on. Unless your book sells super, super well, royalties are small bits of like, you know, a few hundred pounds here and there, something like that. You have to sell a lot of copies to get uh, a lot of royalties. And writing is a very isolating and unglamorous process. I mean, my last book, I spent a year writing it. It was a lot of spending uh, summer days inside at my laptop, typing away. And then somebody, uh, then an editor who is incredibly important, but uh, oh, they just brutally shit over everything you've done in the most necessary but painful way. All the things you love the most, they're like, this is a bit boring. This doesn't feel relevant. And you go through rounds and rounds of edits, and then eventually the book is out in the world, and it is the most anticlimactic day imaginable. For one one day, nobody has your book. The next day, people who pre-ordered it have it, and you just sit there going, now what? <laughs> I would not sit here and say that I regret writing them or that I would change uh, the process because it's been very rewarding in its own way, and yeah, the, the the concept of the legacy that that leaves is really quite exciting, but the rest of it is it doesn't pay much at all. It's very isolating. It's not glamorous. It's painful. It's slow. It's long, and it's anticlimactic at the end. I wish I could sit here and say, "Oh, it's fantastic. It's the best thing ever," but it's really boring. Yeah, I, I think that's a good learning in terms of you know. Writing a book, as you say, is an incredible thing to have and to be able to say you've done. And it it can be rewarding in the sense that, you know, journalists might be interested and it, it adds to your credibility in some way. But I think the important lesson from you there is go into it with your eyes open and appreciate what it actually is, the process, because it's not this yeah, shiny, amazing thing all the time. It's really hard work. It takes a long time. You don't get an immediate reward from it. That's not to say that people shouldn't have the ambition to write a book if they want to, but it's just recognizing and understanding what that actually entails and what the purpose of it is, because it's not going to be hugely lucrative for, for the most part. Exactly, because nutrition books are not often bestsellers. Uh, they obviously have their very important market, but 
it's not like, you know, a popular fiction book. It's not going to sell anywhere near that amount. And I think, you know, if someone really wants to do it, wonderful. But I think people really need to question why. Why do you want to write a book? What is the purpose of it? And, you know, when people write reviews, they can be lovely, but also quite brutal. You mentioned a one-year, five-year plan. Does that mean that you've got another book in that plan? Or what else is in your plan? I'd love to know a bit more. So my... Part of my plan is to have more time for myself. I spent the first six years of building my business, working 10 hours a day, six days a week, pretty much to really build this. And especially while I was doing my psychotherapy training, it was just really hard. I was doing seven day weeks sometimes. And I think I've really started to appreciate the value of being more than just my work and having more interests outside of work as well. You have to be more than just your work, I think. It is a hugely important part of my my day, my week, my life, my identity as well. I guess part of my one-year plan in particular is to rest and enjoy life. I've gone down to four and a half days a week. I plan to go down to four uh, max. So I have half of Saturday, all of Sunday and all of Monday off which is an absolute delight. There's nothing better than taking Mondays off. Truly, it is glorious. Everyone wants to take Friday off. No, no, no. Nonsense. Don't do that. Take Mondays off because everyone goes back to work. You can still have all the fun on a Sunday. And everyone's like, oh, got to you know, be careful. Go back to work tomorrow. Not me. No, no. I can be out until I pub quiz until 11 p.m. and come home. No problem. And I wake up on a Monday morning and I don't get out of bed until like 9.30 and... I know that when I get out of bed, everyone is at work and I am not. And truly, there is no greater feeling in the world. It is the best. So part of my one-year plan is to really enjoy the rewards of the hard work that I've done over the last six years and actually really take time to appreciate what I've built for myself. Really appreciate that and not just always move on to the next thing because it's so easy to just always move on to the next thing. Um, I am working on more kind of CPD and online courses. I have many, many ideas. Um, I plan is to tackle them one each year for the foreseeable future. We're now actually just recently reached a point where we've had to completely close our doors to any new inquiries, which is really exciting. I didn't expect to be at this point this year. I thought it would take until next year to reach that point. But Hebe's now fully booked. I'm fully booked. Um, we have a wait list to both of us. What that means is potentially I need to look into uh, bringing on someone new, which is a daunting but very exciting process. I love the idea of giving that opportunity to someone who's just starting out in their career as well. So that is part of the plan. Uh, Beyond that, at the moment, I've said to my agent, my agent's already asked me, so any ideas for new books? And I said, not this year. I need a break first. So uh, that's not part of my one-year plan, but is definitely part of the kind of 10-year plan. So I've written four books in the space of, what, five years. Uh, I think think it's time for a bit of a break from that, partly so that I can prioritize other things. Uh, So really, those are my kind of my things that I can share at the moment that are my focus is rest and enjoyment, uh, uh, reaping the rewards and enjoying what I've built. Well, it sounds like... It's a very well-deserved break. Um, I just want to ask one more question about your four-day week because you were almost apologetic when you started saying that, when you started started saying that you were taking some time back. But our, our whole thing is, you know, building a business around you and around your life and giving ourselves as nutrition professionals the ability to 
blend our work around our life. Um, especially, you know, with me, I'm about to become a first-time mum and it's particularly relevant for me right now to think about how I can match the two, having my own business and, and then family. Um, and then that applies to regardless of, of whatever you want to do. How do you structure your week now then to get that down to four days? And how did you approach trying to do that? It was actually not too difficult because um, my psychotherapy training was uh, all day on a Monday, every Monday. And so instead of filling that time, once that was free, I just left it free. And I was like, I'm not going to touch this. At first, I thought I'd just do this for the summer. And then I loved it so much. I was like, nope, that is staying. That is definitely staying. I'm not filling that with anything. So that was quite easy. So now I have um, Tuesday is a mostly clinical day for me. Wednesday is a whole day clinical day for me. Uh, Thursday is always my non-clinical day. It's for anything but talking to people. Uh, Friday is again a full clinical day for me. And then I do a Saturday morning from nine till 12, um, which is... It's a bit painful um, starting at 9 a.m. because I'm not a morning person. I start at 10 a.m. on on any day, uh, not earlier. And so 9 a.m. on Saturday is a bit of a challenge. And that's what I'm eventually going to give up. What I'm going to do is whenever those clients leave, I'm not going to replace those slots. I'm just going to just leave that be empty so that I basically only do Tuesday to Friday and have a full three-day weekend. Oh, I absolutely love that. And I completely encourage that because I think building businesses that work around you is so, so important. I know, I mean, a lot of people who might have families, for example, struggle when it comes to school holidays. It's something that I've recently had to, to, to experience. And so I am trying to plan my business so that I don't have to work for August, which is quite daunting. But I think if you've got those other passive income streams, you can have that time off and you can have that business that really works for you without, you know, sweating all over the place, trying to do everything. It's exactly. been a really, really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pixie. Because our podcast is all about nutrition business secrets, we would love it if you could give us one best secret that you would like our listeners to take away today. Okay, my secret, I've kind of mentioned it a couple of times, but I feel like it's really the big thing for me that has been, that has guided me really well that I think is helpful, hopefully for people, which is create the thing you wish existed and that you had to struggle to learn. If you can do that, other people will want that too. And that's really guided me quite well. And that continues to guide me to this day in terms of what to create. That's brilliant. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been great. 